I will see you next week. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Arthur Z. Arthur, welcome to WCBN, and thanks for being here to talk today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, it's great. It's great to see you. Um, Before we go any further, um, well, actually, I should say you're in town. You've been in town this week. Um, you've you've done a reading already, um, and tomorrow you have another event at UMA in the Helmut Stern Auditorium. You'll be in conversation with friend of the show Khaled Matawa. Um, so, and that will be at five thirty. So, folks, can you can put that on your 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 dance card for tomorrow, <laughs> Thursday, five thirty p.m. at the at the Art Museum, uh, five thirty p.m. Uh, to to go and see Arthur Z in person. Um, and Arthur, congratulations on the recent, uh, the, the win, Sightlines, the book that we have on the table, um, your most recent uh, collection out this year with Copper Canyon Press, Sightlines, um, recently won the National Book Award. Uh, so many, many congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we also have... Many of Arthur's other books. Um, thanks. A shout out to Laura at Copper Canyon Press. Thank you so much, Laura, for sending the books. We've got The Red Shifting Web, Poems 1970 to 1998. We've got The Ginkgo Light. We've got The Silk Dragon, Translations from the Chinese. We've got Compass Rose. Arthur, you've got another one, too. Uh, the only other book is Kipu. Kipu, Kipu, and of course, Sightlines. Um, and we'll hear some poems today from Sightlines and maybe some other poems sure. from the other books, too. Before we go any further, I'll read the bio in the back of Sightlines. Arthur Z is a poet, translator, and editor. He is the author of 10 books of poetry. I think we've just named many of them. <laughs> and is a professor emeritus at the Institute of American Indian Arts. His poems have been translated into 11 languages, including Chinese, Dutch, German, Korean, Italian, and Spanish. A recipient of the Jackson Poetry Prize from Poets and Writers, two fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Howard Foundation Fellowship, a Lannan Literary Award, an American Book Award, a Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Writers Award, as well as five grants from the, the Witterbinder Fellowship. 
foundation for poetry. Z was the first poet laureate of Santa Fe, where he lives with his wife, Carol Moldau. From 2012 to 2017, he was a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets and, in 2017, was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And as we just mentioned at the top of the program, Sightlines won the 2019 National Book Award for Poetry. So another award. That's quite a long list of awards, Arthur. It is a long It's list. amazing. <laughs> um, Thank you for talking today, for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I met with uh, 10 of the writing, creative writing students uh, as part of the Helen Zell Writers Program, and it was a real pleasure to do that today. So that it was a day full of poems, too, yes. and, and more ahead yes. then. Um, so so let's, ta- let's talk about Sightlines and the making of this, this, this book collection, Arthur. Um, when you were putting it together, what was what was the beginning mo- moment for you? Was there an image that began Sightlines? Um, the beginning moment for the poem um, really had to do with when I looked at what became the title poem, Sightlines. It's a short poem in about thir- uh, maybe 20, 25 one-line stanzas. Um, just for fun, as background, Lisa Russ Barr at the University of Virginia emailed me a few years ago and said, I'm putting together an anthology about Thomas Jefferson. Would you write a poem? And at first I thought, oh, I can't write a poem on demand. That's, you know, impossible. <laughs> and then I thought, well, wait a minute. I've never written about Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers. And I thought, I'll do a little research. And I told Lisa, I'm, I'll write something. And if I don't like it, if it isn't any good, then... Uh, we'll just have to scrap it, but I'll give it a try, and if I like it, I'll send it to you. And uh, I really like what happened, and in fact, when I wrote it, I had no idea that was going to become the title poem to the book. But as I looked at the lines of that poem, each one was like a sight line, was like something appearing out of the blue. And is that why um, some of the lines appear within the book itself so along I, the way in the structure of the of sight lines, the book? Yes. Yeah, so when I was choreographing the book, at first I laid out the poems on the floor and I thought, oh, it's going to be in sections. But it felt forced. It didn't feel like they should stop and start and stop and start. And then I thought, oh, maybe a line could appear and disappear and a reader wouldn't quite know what was going on. But eventually all of those lines would reappear in the title poem, and it was like all of the different sites of lines of ways of looking at the world would come together in the title poem. I love how you say appear and disappear. Um, Is that, do you mean because... The line itself, it, when it in the book, when you come to the lines, um, it's almost as if it's not as if you uh, it directly. It's not as if it's the, you. It connects immediately to to what's next to it. Right. Oftentimes, the one-liners are in tension or in contrast to what comes before, what comes after. So it's a form of getting the reader to sort of think about what's going on. This is a little disorienting. And then to have to sort of look at the world in that way with new eyes, too. And then when all the lines come together, it's like seeing the world again for the first time, all the things come together. And having that sense of some of the lines um, 
when you're remembering them too, having that, yes. that, that, that nice shock of recognition. Absolutely. Even though many of the lines are, are almost, are, some of them are brutal as, as well. Um, I'm trying to think which one. Yeah. There's um, a lot of, uh, violence in the world. There's a lot of, uh, um, nature. There's, there's a whole mix of, of different worlds coming together. And this idea of appearing and disappearing, Arthur, that's that's in your the lead poem of Sightlines as well, isn't it? The uh, water calligraphy. Yeah, the opening poem is actually inspired by uh, travel in China, and there's this phenomenon going on in public parks in the big cities like Beijing, Shanghai where old men go into parks at dawn and they carry buckets of water. It's kind of an amazing phenomenon. And a long bamboo rod with a sponge brush. And at dawn, they write in Chinese characters on the slate walkways. They write these beautiful poems. And as the sun comes up, people crowd around and watch the characters. And then the water evaporates and disappears, and the poem disappears. And so each, in these mornings... Is it a new poem? What's your sense of it? Like, what is happening? Is it a, a new poem every morning, or is it about more coming as a ritual, coming and doing a, a similar character in the morning? Or I think it's both. I think word. Uh, the the men who are doing this have been interviewed, and sometimes there are classical Chinese poems. Sometimes there are poems that they themselves wrote, and um, and sometimes they're like sayings, but uh, they're written beautifully in water. And, you know, newspaper journalists have come running up saying, don't you want this preserved? Shouldn't it be ink on, you know, paper so it can be preserved and saved? And, and the men are like, no, this is just part of the process. We write it and we let it go. And it, the sun comes up, it warms up, the water evaporates, and that's part of the beauty of it. And it, so it is, it's in the moment of it, too, yes. definitely. And yes. it's, so it doesn't sound like it would be repeated ever. That's right. And that collaboration is key. Yes. And um and so and and when you saw it um Arthur uh, what was it like for you to be because you were witnessing the poetry or or did did you also become part of it? Did you because as a man, you could join the men. Because it's also interesting; it doesn't sound like there were women that were doing this. This there, there may morning be women, ritual. but I didn't see any women who were doing it. Uh, I saw it in Beijing at the Temple of Heaven Park, and I saw it in Chengdu. At the um, there's a famous park with like a hundred varieties of bamboo, and again, it was uh, old men coming in and just doing it as like their morning practice or ritual. And it was very beautiful. And it's the opening to the book, of course, it's this idea of language and transience and uh, being open and available to that, accepting to that. And and it seems like accepting that things aren't lasting. Yes, absolutely. Is I'm wondering, too, if there's a moment in the, I don't know, you know, Arthur, would you would you mind reading the poem? Sure, I could read the poem. So um, I, I would want to say to listeners that um, the setting is about 20 miles north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's in the po what's called the Pauaki Valley, 
where the um, rivers come down from the mountains. And if you're walking in that river, the speaker is walking in an irrigation ditch, which at this time of year is empty. The water's not running. But if you're walking in this ditch and you look to the west, you see Los Alamos, the birthplace of the atom bomb up on one of the mesas. So that's sort of visible, those buildings, I think, in the mind of the speaker and in my mind as I was writing the poem made me think about the atomic age and that led to some of the violence that's in the poem, but also the idea of American history that God Thomas Jefferson couldn't have imagined what our world would be like today. Right. So sight lines. Sight lines. I'm walking in sight of the Rio Nambe. Salt cedar rises through silt in an irrigation ditch. The snowpack in the Sangre de Cristos has already dwindled before spring. At least no fires erupt in the conifers above Los Alamos. The plutonium waste has been hauled to an underground site. A man who built plutonium triggers breeds horses now. No one could anticipate this distance from Monticello. Jefferson despised newspapers, but no one thing takes us out of ourselves. During the Cultural Revolution, a boy saw his mother shot by a firing squad. A woman detonates when a spam text triggers bombs strapped to her body. When I come to an upright circular steel lid, I step out of the ditch. I step out of the ditch but step deeper into myself. I arrive at a space that no longer needs autumn or spring. I find ginseng where there is no ginseng, my talisman of desire. Though you are visiting Paris, you are here at my fingertips. Though I step back into the ditch, no whitening cloud dispels this world's mystery. The ditch ran before the year of the Louisiana Purchase. I'm walking on silt, glimpsing horses in the field, fielding the shapes of our bodies in white sand. Though parallel lines touch in the infinite, the infinite is here. Thank you, Arthur. The infinite is here. And then you have the, the, M, the M dash there. Why that? Um, because no sort of statement is complete or final. And so the statement is there. And then it, as I say, it appears and disappears. It comes and you let it go. It, it, vanishes. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Arthur Z is here. Sightlines, the poem you just heard, the title poem of the book, Sightlines, National Book Award winner this year. Um, we'll be back with more Arthur Z. <laughs>
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Um, today on the program, Arthur Z is here. His book, Sightlines, the 2019 National Book Award winner on the table with us um, out with Copper Canyon Press this year. Um, thanks to Sam for engineering today. Uh, welcome aboard, Sam. Woo. Whoop. <laughs> um, tomorrow, you can go in person. You can put this in your, your, your calendar. Arthur Z is going to be in conversation with friend of the show, Khaled Matawa, um, at UMA in Helmut Stern Auditorium at 530. Um, another event uh, that you, you may have heard uh, last week um, is the Stain Power Concrete not wood, um, will be happening this Saturday, six to nine, um, when, when Molly and Dante dropped by last Wednesday to tell us about it. So, um, concrete, not wood, a multi-genre production by Ipsy and Richmond youth artists will be happening this coming Saturday, the seventh, six to 9 PM at Ypsilanti community high school. Um, uh, 2095 Packard Street, Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, the doors open at 6. Um, and again, Arthur Z's event at UMA tomorrow, 530. So enough with the event calendar right for now, <laughs> right, Arthur? Back to poems okay, and sure. poetry. Um, what What is your writing process like? Because it's clear that you have a strong and vibrant work ethic if we just look at the books on the table with us today. Well, my morning ritual, people laugh at it, is I like to make a thermos of coffee the night before. So I like to get up early in the morning. How like, early? Uh, dawn, maybe 5.30 in the morning, sort of in the dark before dawn. That's my most creative time when I'm sort of, I think of it as being in dream time. I'm not fully awake. I'm getting up and I uh, have a writing studio. So I go there and I sit down and I free associate. And But I like having a thermos of coffee already ready. The coffee is hot from the night before. So I'm not like brewing and making coffee and taking that time. It's like I get up, I'm slightly asleep, slightly awake. I sit down and I have my coffee and I write for um, ideally maybe two hours or something and then go and, you know, have breakfast and go about the day. But that earliest part of the morning is really important to me. It's like out of the darkness as the sunrise comes up, I see the outlines of the trees outside my studio window and then I see the sort of sky lightning and there's that physicality of like almost catching the sunrise or catching the wave of the day. So my sort of daily practice ideally is is to do that each morning and um yeah, run with it. And it would feel yeah. like maybe um that you're witnessing the day opening as you're seeing that light come yes. across. Yes. So it sounds like you've got these wonderful windows in your studio. I do. I do. I have a lot of glass. Uh, I have some glass doors so I can like see through them and they're looking out to the, we have an apple orchard uh, outside and then I can sort of see the outline of the uh, hills, really mountains, and then the sunrise coming up over them. It's really very lovely. And, and the dream time aspect of it seems really important this idea of like i love how you're like nothing's brewing coffee isn't going to get in the way of that because that would sort of shake you out of it you right. can kind of do right. it on autopilot right. but maybe not completely right and so what is it about accessing the subconscious 
that you feel is, is valuable in the work? I think uh, it's it's sort of at the idea of a threshold. It's at the threshold of consciousness that one is just waking up, but that sort of whatever one might be dreaming about is still somehow present. So when I'm writing, I'm not trying to uh, organize it or be in too much control of it. I'm trying to really let the images and the phrases that come to me just come out and spill onto the page. And a poem like Sightlines, you know, sometimes I go through 70, 80, even 100 drafts to a poem. And so it may take me a whole month of writing every day to end up with just one poem. And people may think, oh, God, that's so much work for, you know, one 20-line, 30-line poem. But I used to tell my students at the Institute of American Indian Arts, if I write one poem a month and I have 12 in the year, if they're really good poems, that's a really good year for me. And then, as you can see, over time, I've been writing for 50 years. It starts to add up and you develop a whole body of work. So you've been writing for 50 years. When did what did you when did you start? Like, were you someone that carried a notebook when you were very young, or, or yeah? So people laugh at my story, which is um, <laughs> people are always laughing, are they? <laughs> what the heck? I, <laughs> Jolly people. My um, father was an immigrant from China. He got his PhD at MIT, and when I grew up in New York City, he wanted me to follow in his footsteps. So I didn't know what I wanted to do in high school, and. Actually, poetry was taught pretty badly. So I went to MIT, and my first semester there, I was bored in a BC calculus lecture. The professor was writing equations, and I just thought, I don't want to do this with my life, and I just opened up a notebook, and I started writing, and that was in the middle of this big lecture, and I went home that night, and I wrote my first poem, and another day passed, and then I was writing again, and pretty soon... I was writing all the time, and I was so excited about writing, and I thought, this is what I really want to do. I, I may be proficient at math and science, and it may be a sort of family expectation, but language and poetry was really what excited me. So I went home at the end of my third semester at MIT, and I said, guess what? I'm leaving. I'm going to travel and go out to UC Berkeley and study poetry, and my father thought I was crazy, but... Uh, I was persistent, and that's what I did. I mean, it takes that t takes a, a certain amount of bravery to to stand up to parental expectation. Uh, it did. They were very, very upset for many years. They would like call and say, "Well, when I was at Berkeley, they would say, okay, if you're not going to be a, a scientist or engineer.'" How about law? At least you're using words, and that's safe, and that's professional. And I'd be like, "No." And but the wonderful sort of uh, resolution to this story is, and it took like over 20 years, but many years later, my father was in the hospital having a brain operation, and uh, I went to visit him, and he said, you know, I, I never told you this, but um, when I was a teenager growing up in China, my dream was to be a poet. And it like blew me away. It was suddenly like, oh my God, why did you tell me that before? And then we, then we had this moment of, you know, in, uh, inside and reconciliation, and then he was, you know, incredibly proud of me. So that was really, you know, a wonderful ending to that story, to how I became a poet. It seems like you fulfilled what he really wanted for you in some way, even if 
it was hidden from himself because he wanted you to be safe or have stability or have recognizable definition in your life somehow. Yeah, and I totally understand it. You know, he was an immigrant. He came before the Second World War. The Civil War broke out in China. There was so much turmoil. Uh, Relatives were coming out to New York City, and it was like, you know, think, survive, all think, a safe profession. And poetry was not on that spectrum. But, you know, things work out the way they do. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And... And you've made it something that became, well, not not safe. I don't know that that's the right word to say because your your poems are not not that, Arthur. But the way the the life you've built with it, you've you've built a solid, stable life as a poet. Well, yeah. I mean, writing poetry totally changed my life. I went from East Coast to West Coast. I'd never been west of Pennsylvania. I changed from studying math and science to studying classical Chinese poetry. I wanted to learn classical Chinese because I felt like I could draw on the rich tradition of ancient Chinese poetry. And with the little Chinese I had, I felt that the translations in English I saw weren't very fulfilling or satisfying. So I thought, well, I can learn my craft through translation. And yes. today, so many poets, you know, get an MFA, and I'm, for instance, working with students getting their MFA, and, and that is important. However, you learn your knowledge and gain your craft. But for me, all I can say is I learned it through translation. And and what was your—who did you work with in Berkeley when you got there? Because you obviously started taking different kinds of classes. So the poet professor who really became my mentor and who um, was instrumental in my becoming a poet is Josephine Miles. She was the first woman professor at UC Berkeley to receive tenure. She also had a disability. She had rheumatoid arthritis, so she had to be carried into a classroom, which was pretty amazing. But she became my mentor, and I remember going into her office saying, I'm never going to graduate. I have these math and science credits. I want to study classical Chinese. I want to take uh, a class in Blake. And what am I going to do? And I'll never forget, she laughed and she said, you know, I'm a university professor. Create your own major in poetry. I'll sponsor you. And she said, I don't care if you take Swahili or political science, but someday you're going to be a poet. She knew. She could see it in you. In 2002, I had the pleasure of touring Taiwan with the Nobel laureate Derek Walcott. And uh, Derek and I had some conversations, and Derek once said to me, and I've never forgotten this, he said, the path of a poet is arduous. And Derek said, I always feel like there's someone behind the poet who says this poetry is worth doing, it's worth committing your life to. And Derek said, for me, growing up in St. Lucia in the Caribbean, it was my mother. She read poetry to me as a child. She was the one who inspired me and believed in me. And um, and he turned to me and I said, well, you know, Josephine Miles was the person who believed in me. I'm so glad you had Josephine, Arthur. It also, I bet you've been that person for other other poets, too. I taught for 22 years at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and I worked with 
Native students from probably over 200 tribes across the United States. So it was my pleasure to, you know, I've been given so much, it was my pleasure to pass on a lot of what I've learned. And um, I helped nurture um, an emerging generation of young Native American writers who are flourishing today. Yeah, 22 years. That's that's a lot of giving of of your 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 um but your guidance and and inspiration too. Well, I, I loved teaching there. The native students were amazing. I was there from 1984 to 2006, so those 22 years. And during that time. Some of the students who emerged and who are, you know, um, recognized poets in their own right include Laylee Long Soldier, who won the National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, Sherwin Bitsui, Orlando White, D.G. Ockpick, uh, Laura Da, Jennifer Forrester, Santi Frazier. They all have books. They're all active publishing. Uh, James Thomas Stevens, Allison Hedgecoke. Uh, so a whole generation of writers that's, that's a beautiful thing that that feels like um I know earlier during during the, your bio uh part you've many awards and it feels like each of these um students is like another another testament and in their own right as well mm-hmm. obviously too um but well let's take a short break Arthur and then we'll come back we'll talk more today Arthur Z is here his book, Sightlines, um, the winner of the National Book Award for Poetry. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Sam behind the glass. We'll be back. I feel coarse and strange. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, Arthur Z is here. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. Um, we've got Sightlines out with Copper Canyon Press this year, National Book Award winner. So these, these books are going to be, there's going to be a new print run. There's yes. going to be a different, because my book says finalist on it, but there's going to be a new edition out. Any day it should be coming off the press. And and it was, so it was Michael Wunderlich look that uh introduced you at the award ceremony arthur mark wonderlich was the chair um there were five judges uh in each category in poetry and mark gave the um speech about poetry and uh called me up to the podium for the award and and his his speech about poetry was saying about again how the necessary uh, nature of having poems in our our life, and that resonated with you when you 
can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. As I remember Mark's uh, short but wonderful speech about poetry, he called poetry an essential human activity, that it was like, you know, baking bread or, you know, eating, or it was something necessary and important to life. And um, when I got up to give my short acceptance speech, we were supposed to limit our talks to can you believe it? 120 seconds to two minutes or less. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to thank everyone and say something about poetry? But anyhow, I said... <laughs> you uh, did it, though, although you did okay. acknowledge that they were trying to wave yes. you off, I think. <laughs> um, I said, poetry matters now more than ever. Uh, it really has a special role to play in our society and in the world. It It helps us slow down to really experience language. Poetry, to me, is language at its most intense, to slow down and see clearly and feel deeply and really, in that way, see what truly matters. And earlier, when we, at the beginning of of our conversation today, Arthur, you were talking about how... um, having the poems like, like like fragments of poems or lines from poems appearing and disappearing and the use of the dash in this way um is it it feels like this is a a, a quality where you you want to disrupt or destabilize so we can see things in a new way Absolutely. I I think, um, you know, and some critics have said my poetry is difficult. It's challenging. My response is I'm writing writing the poems I need to write, and they need to come from a deep place, from the deepest place inside myself. And if they ask a reader to stretch a little bit, then I think that's fine. It's, um, I can't be, um, you know, poetry isn't like some sort of pop solution to things. And I want people to sort of engage with the world and think. And so I see disorientation as a necessary stage toward re-envisioning and looking around and understanding the world. You know, the cliche is you have to lose your way in order to find it. If you just are following the well-beaten path, that's fine, it's safe, but you might not uh, discover other uh, important things in life, and you might it might not really be your true life path, and so you might have to step off that path and get lost. And then when you get back on the path, it's it's like seeing things again for the first time. It's like having a renewed appre- appreciation and sense of wonder in the world. Yeah, a sense of wonder that's so so valuable. Because sometimes we can be surrounded by so much stimuli or, or what's required of us right. um, that you can be pushed along in a way. So this, this slowness of, of what the poem might require, as you were saying, Arthur, so vital because it can change your experience in the moment if you choose to take the time to be in that poem. Absolutely. And, and in that sense, I think poetry can be a form of awakening. It can be a form of enlightening and um, making you really, again, sort of see and apprehend with uh, fresh eyes. And that's so important. I think in Sightlines and and also in Compass Rose and, and, and in your work, I think probably... Um, probably since the very beginning, you, you have these um, qualities of taking these images or moments that seem very um, 
like very opposite or very different and in placing them in the same space, um, to have that juxtaposition or that contrast, um, like moments of something where it could be like a very beautiful moment from the natural world. And then something, uh, very specific about like a PVC pipe, or I hope I'm getting that right. Or yes. something like a yes. piece of construction or, um, maybe some plutonium from a, a, a plant like these, um, or, or maybe even a phrase that someone might be saying that's, uh, like, like maybe even, I don't know. I was going to say like a, a vulgar phrase, but it's not like, <laughs> um, but, but something that's like something sharp and then next to something that's beautiful. Yeah. I want poetry to be able to incorporate worlds or the whole world and not be limited to say, uh, a limited use of beautiful words like, right. you know, sun or moon or river or, you know, or even blood. But uh, I want to be able to use bathtub or pencil or light bulb in a poem that the poetic exists everywhere. And in many ways, my use of juxtaposition of putting things side by side has to do with my obsession with language and Chinese linguistics. If you write the character Autumn, you write basically plant on the left side and then you write fire on the right. So plants or plant tips on fire is the word for autumn and it's a picture, it's an image. And if you write the character heart and mind below autumn, if you put autumn in the heart and mind, you create the word sorrow, which to me is sort of mind-blowing that in ancient Chinese, and we don't know who invented these characters, I think, they were experimented with, and then people agreed, like, okay, this is how you write the word sorrow, autumn in the heart and mind. But to me, it's, like, so visceral and powerful. And then, for me, it's like experimenting with different combinations of, like you say, something calm and something violent or something beautiful and something ugly. I mean, we live in a world of tremendous contrasts and tensions and simultaneities right now. And um, I want to explore that in my poetry. And it means, yes, maybe it means a reader needs to stretch a little bit, but I hope it's an exciting sort of journey or exciting risk to make that stretch. Yes. The, and so maybe, and now you can say, well, they're not difficult enough that they don't win the National Book Award <laughs> or actually quite literally a host of other awards that have come before. So so it's good that um, you had Josephine's voice there at the core. Um, right. But, but, there's, right. but there's been these other signals along the way right. that, the, that the work is necessary and, and the experience you're creating for the reader. Thank you. Is, I mean, I think my language is fairly clear and clean. The sentences aren't that complicated. So I have certain procedures that I do as a poet that keep the poem accessible and immediate. And certainly my grounding in Chinese poetry, which, you know, turns to nature and makes things very present tense. Those are all strengths that I bring to my work and allow my work to remain accessible and open. And and so you began translating in earnest when you were in Berkeley. Yes, I never went to graduate school and I never got an MFA, unlike so many poets of my generation. And it wasn't planned that way, but when I was at Berkeley, I wanted to translate the classical Chinese poets because I felt like I could... Well, honor them, but I could also learn from them. So those early translations were how I developed my craft. And then at different stages of my writing career, 
Oftentimes when I finished a book and I wasn't sure what to do next, I turned to Chinese poets of different time periods, and I thought, I'm going to translate, say, Winnie Daw, a poet who died in 1946, but who wrote in uh, colloquial Chinese. And I thought, I'm going to translate his work. He's not really known by American readers, so there's that sense of honoring his work. But I also thought, He's a poet who knows the Chinese tradition, and he's breaking it down. He's taking it apart and using what matters to him to create a new kind of poetry. And I thought that might help me find my way. And that's where I started to experiment with the longer sequences, building the longer poem. And it came through working and thinking about how he created his longer poems. And so how how did you start building those longer sequences like when do you know and they're separated usually with numbers uh and and titles usually so there's a like a main title and then a number with a a, a subtitle so um i i think basically um my only intuition my only instinct visceral guide is if i write a short poem Sometimes I can feel like, oh, that's not done. That's just the beginning of something much larger. And I need to really give myself room to explore and expand and develop. And I like sequences because then I can have a pause and the next section can be very different and be in tonal counterpoint or contrast. And then I can write another. And as I write these sections, I begin to think, I probably need some kind of structural through line, some kind of thematic thread that might help me string these together. And usually the first poem I write in a sequence, is it's never the first poem at, in the beginning, you know, that opens the sequence. It's usually like if there are nine sections, I'm usually writing section five, six, or seven, though I don't know it. I'm just writing sections, and so the poem is growing organically from inside out. And then I get to have a bunch of them, and I can think, oh, this is where the opening is, and then they start to move into position. And sometimes I write sections that don't work, and I just throw them out. But eventually I'm thinking of some kind of image to harness them. So, for instance... Uh, one book is called Archipelago, the idea of many islands in a sea. And it's like each section of a poem is like an island. They all have their own shape, but they're all connected below surface. Mm-hmm. And for the, the the poems in Sight Lines, Arthur, was there um, in one of, for example, like if we looked at well, the glass constellation is not a series poem. It's a long. It's a long poem that is the anchor. Is the end the last poem in the book? Um, maybe we can come back to that. But if we look at, um, let's see, Sprang, um, which features, let's see, which features a moose. I was very appreciative to see the moose mm. <laughs> <laughs> make an appearance. Um, so can you can you remember if we're looking at Sprang um, for those at home following along? We're at page thirty nine now, <laughs> in in sight lines. Um, we've got Winter Stars as the opening poem. What can you remember? Which one in the process was the first? The engine room maybe would be five or six. Yellow lightning, or red ruffed lemur. Um, 
So I think of this as a suite of poems. Each one has a oh. subtitle. Okay. Uh, and that's the reason there's uh, a subtitle. It's like there's a little more independence. But I believe I wrote section six first in that, which was about visiting the zoo in Washington, D.C., and seeing this red-ruffed lemur come out of his little hiding place. And when he saw me as a human, he was like, what? And he turned around and went back in. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And that was like this like mirror of looking at you know how a human can be threatening or scary to another creature. And um, that was like a trigger that sparked that poem. And then grew into the sweet because there because there is this this element of um violence or threat within this suite of poems mm -hmm. in each of them mm -hmm. like in the next one we have a line a tiger shark prowls along the shoreline for turtles um and some less obvious, like an aspen leaf drops into a creek, like the next line, even though that in a way is it's it's being taken from the tree. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, food chain, you know, the tiger <laughs> shark prowling uh, for turtles. But there's also a lot of sense of endangerment and climate yes. change. And um, at one point, there's the image of. Um, I'm just going to read the, read the phrase from Black Center uh, rather than the whole poem. When the last speaker of a language dies, a hue vanishes from the spectrum of visible light. And so there's that sense of um, loss that's happening on the planet, and one can see it in different manifestations in nature. But here it's, you know, thinking of... If you imagine all of the languages of the world, and, and right now, you know, a language is disappearing, I believe, every two weeks off the face of the planet. But, you know, if I said that in a poem, that would just be overtly political or didactic. But if I created a metaphor and I basically was saying, well, if you think of all of the languages that exist in the world, they're like, and here's my science background, they're like different colors making intense white light. Uh, they all add up to one thing. They all connect. But when they start dying, you start losing pieces or hues of that white, and eventually you're going to see that loss in terms of the visible, you know, what exists in terms of the light. I know when I, I read that passage um, uh, earlier, Arthur, I thought it it hit me too because I thought of the the disappearing of the Cornish language in Cornwall as just a uh, at, um, too. So we'll take. You know what? Oh, what were you going to say? I was just going to say in New Mexico, if you look at say uh, the native populations, there are only ninety Indian people left at Pawaki Pueblo. So you see that physical sort of decimation and erosion, um, you know, all the time. It's 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 not just the forests in South America. It's, right. it's our language right. systems. It's, it's our people. Let's take a short break. We'll come back. Today on the program, Arthur Z is here in the studio. Sightlines, the book on the table. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers. I'm so glad you're joining us. Um, that was just, uh, we just heard uh, Kristen Hirsch there, friend of the show. Um, thanks to Sam for engineering today. Um, and uh, just my great thanks to Arthur Z for being here, talking poems and, and stopping by the station. Um, Arthur, we've been talking a lot about... Um, the importance of translation in in your work. Um, and I also want to just add again, how many languages your own poems have been translated, um, out, out in the world as well. Um, so, so could you read us one of your translations and maybe even, uh, if you can, if it has a moment attached to it, like in your own development as a poet. Um, I'm going to pick this, uh, poem by Tao Chen, whose dates are 365 to 427, Common Era, and it amazes me that he lived, you know, over 1,500 years ago, and it's so fresh and immediate. Drinking wine. A green pine is in the east garden, but the many grasses obscure it. A frost wipes out all the other species, and then I see its magnificent tall branches. In a forest, men do not notice it, but standing alone, it is a miracle. I hang a jug of wine on a cold branch, then stand back and look again and again. My life spins with dreams and illusions. Why then be fastened to the world? Thank you, Arthur. I love that poem. That was written in 416 Common Era. It's amazing that just, it can be fresh today. It's wonderful. Completely. And and that um was that the, was that the most one of the most surprising things when you came to this poem when you were actually making it cuz you have to inhabit the poem as the translator of the poem. I was just amazed at how present tense, how immediate and fresh those ancient Chinese poems were after so many years. And um, that kind of vitality and vision just came through in the language. So it was an honor for me to work with it and render it as best I could in English. And it seems also like it's one of the, the, like the speaker he he would be in your poet family in some way because of this idea of uh calling upon dreams and also like like even in your your daily practice of harnessing that dream space for your early writing in the morning and um and also being unbounded like why shouldn't i why should i be fastened right he's one of the early chinese dropouts he worked for a <laughs> bureaucracy, if you can believe it, in ancient China. And he got up one morning and he basically said, this isn't me. And he quit his job. He bought some land in the mountains. He built his own house. He planted chrysanthemums and he wrote poetry. And that's what he's remembered for. That's a good life. Yeah. That's a good life. Um, but we all have our paths, right? Absolutely. Each path has the potential to be such a good life. Absolutely. Um, Arthur, thanks so much for talking today and, and for bringing, I wish we had more time because we have, we have so many books on the table with us, but let's, let's go back to, um, let's go back to sight lines. Um, and, and also, uh, maybe, maybe a quick, cause I'd love to hear another poem from sight lines. Um, what, what's your work like now, Arthur? Like, cause sight lines has been, um, 
obviously been in the making for a little while to have this beautiful book out in the world. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight, right? At Copper right, Canyon Press. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, what is what's what's your what are you working on right now? What are some of the ideas? I or, have a lot or, of poems, but it's too soon to know where they're going. A lot of them are are connected to what I call seasonal rhythm. Uh, my wife and I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, we have water rights on this property, so I'm connected to the irrigation ditch system, which runs from April 15th to October 15th. So I go hike about a you know quarter of a mile uphill, and I drop this metal gate into the ditch, and the water level rises, and it goes down these pipes, and we irrigate the old apple trees and things like that. So I'm very connected to the sort of seasonal shifts and this kind of irrigation of the land system. And this, it feels like movement um, is clear in how the poems move within the book itself, Sightlines, the, the, the movement within a poem and how the poems move together. Um, whether it's your use of the dashes, like we've, we've mentioned a few times, also this interesting and the use of space on the page um, uh, and single lines uh, uh, and also um, the when you cross out po uh, words, but keep the word there, these layers that are still. Yeah, present. those are happening in sections with voices and it has to do with accuracy where the speaker says something and realizes that's not quite right, and then he revises what he says. And so I wanted to enact that process of uh, recognition, like you say something, it's not quite right, and then you change it. And so that's where the strike-through lines come in. So it's a multiplicity even within the, the one voice yes. as well yes. and one mind. Yes. Um, Let's, let's hear a poem from Sightlines. So this is in the voice of Salt. Salt Song. Zunis make shrines on the way to a lake where I emerge, and Miwoks gather me out of pools along the Pacific. The cheetah thirsts for me. And when you sprinkle me on ribeye, you have no idea how I balance silence with thunder and crystal. You dream of butterfly hunting in Madagascar, spelunking through caves echoing with dripping stalactites, and you don't see how I yearn to shimmer in orange aurora against flame. Look at me in your hand. In Egypt, I scrub the bodies of kings and queens. In Pakistan, I zigzag upward through 26 miles of tunnels before drawing my first breath in sunlight. If you heat a kiln to 2,380 degrees and scatter me inside, I vaporize and bond with clay. In this unseen moment, a potter prays because my pattern is out of his hands. And when I touch your lips, you salivate. And when I dissolve on your tongue, your hair rises. Ozone unlocks. A single stroke of lightning sizzles to earth. Thank you, Arthur. How, do, how did you decide to embody salt? Uh, I wanted Salt's to take, voice. <laughs> yes, I wanted to take something very simple and animated and have it speak back to a human being. And uh, for Native people, salt is really important. There's a salt trail that the Zunis do to 
get their salt and the Hopis um, in Arizona do to get their salt. And I thought this is something essential to human existence. And I thought this would be a nice, simple thing. You know, it's on kitchen tables to have something speak back to a human being with surprise. It's something essential, like poems. Absolutely. Thanks for talking today, Arthur. I've loved speaking with you. Thank you. Come back anytime. Thank you for inviting me. Arthur Aziz will be at UMA tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. in conversation with Khaled Matawa. Um, also, you've got ahead on Saturday um, from Neutral Zone, Concrete, Not Wood, Stain Power. Um, that'll be Saturday, 6 to 9 p.m. Um, head to Neutral Zone for more information. Thanks to Sam for engineering today. Welcome aboard again, Sam. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. Thanks to Laura at Copper Canyon Press. Thanks to Frank Uli for post-production. Arthur, big thanks to you. Thanks for inviting me again. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. W C B N F F Kobe Kobe okay computer no you I bet it. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor here on Wednesday, October twenty sixth. My name is Jake Singer and I'm here with Kobe Siegel, Vihan Iswar, Connor Irgood, and Peter Nasser. How are y'all doing this evening? Cold, but good. Yeah, it's, it's cold out there. Yeah, um, I'm doing fantastic. The Bears might win the Super Bowl. Yeah, that 75 I'm, degree weather was nice while the, it lasted. Hold, hold on, we'll, we'll unpack that later. I assume, but Bears win the Super. Nah, 
<laughs> well, we have a packed, ha- packed house for you all today. We have five of us, so we're going to get into some hot debates, a lot of stuff to go over. I really want to talk about NFL trade deadline stuff. Just We're going to give some grades on some of these trades that you've been seeing this past week. Trade deadline for the NFL expires on November 1st, so there are a lot of teams who are in the market currently for players, a lot of other teams who are fielding calls, selling their players. So we'll get into a few of the ones that have already occurred, but of course we will speculate for what happens going on in the future. So my panel, I want to start this all off with arguably the biggest trade that has occurred so far in the trade deadline, Christian McCaffrey. Christian McCaffrey, if you do not know, was formerly the Panthers running back last week. He has been one of the best running backs in, in NFL football when he is healthy, but he's had a lot of injury issues recently. The Panthers are not been a good team this year, have not been a good team last year, really, since Matt Rule has been their coach. Now fired. They trade Christian McCaffrey to the San Francisco 49ers for a second, a third, and a fourth round pick in this upcoming 2023 NFL draft, as